Steve, I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually lost my virginity to this song. <laughs> <laughs> the girl, the girl was bent over the pack. <laughs> no, you were bent over the pack, man. True. <laughs> my, my memory is cloudy back from '82. <laughs> actually, there was no way that that could have happened because I would have only been 12 at this time. So. so funny. Every time I ask you to go to Dave and Buster's, you start crying. <laughs> That's for my diaper. <laughs> we are back with another installment of the Gentleman's Dojo. Oh! Yeah, feeling it. A little Buckner and Garcia to kick us off. To my right from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A good friend of mine, I hate to admit it. No bonus, Steve Byrne, everybody. Oh, please. It was such a nice, and then, I know. The, the, then I dropped it. To my left yep. from Detroit, Michigan. With the body of a. Say it. Uh. A dead manatee? Somebody wrote in and said we should do a... Uh, like, like a, a washed up... A way off. Like I come in, you bring a scale in, and then each week I have to jump on it and see what I'm at. I'd do what it. are you at right now? I, I don't know. I'd say 180. <laughs> Gary! One, last time you were 180 was seventh grade. What do you weigh right now? Maybe two. Two and change. I bet over. Yeah, well, we'll have to, you know, we'll do, we'll, we'll bring in a scale and like uh, those calipers. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll check my sides. All right. I, I'm willing to do that. I'm I'm betting 205. 205? Yeah. That could be about right. Yeah. 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 And I'm in my 30s, so that's not too bad. Listen, <laughs> by the way, this song I just saw in a movie that I loved, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. They okay. played this song. I mean, so great. This yeah. was uh, this song, Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia, was part of a full video game album that was mm-hmm. released back in the early 80s. And I will tell you, you know, that we're both huge, huge, huge video game nerds, yeah. right? And it's always funny. You always poke fun at me because when I got my first warm-up gig ever and I started making a little bit of money here in L.A., I bought a full-size video game. Yeah, the Donkey a Kong. A Donkey Kong machine that yeah. actually has a chip in it that allows me to play almost every other video game that was big back in the early 80s. So it plays Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, uh, Frog, like everything that you can imagine, which is so great, yeah. right? And you make fun of it, but I do think that it was a wise investment. I loved it. So do you remember? No, it's, it's great. Your mom thinks it takes up way too much it does. room in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I have a small apartment, though. Yeah, yeah I, I have a house. How are you doing? Where are you, where are you this weekend? Are you performing this weekend? <laughs> You're not either, so I wouldn't throw stones. Because I'm right taking now. it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because no club would return your call. Yeah, yeah. Please. Couldn't get into a bowling alley this weekend. Listen, I got to tell you this. We have a great show, by the way. We're very excited. I'm I, super pumped about yeah, yeah, this yeah. because... Yeah, so, go ahead. So we both know this. Like, the Atari 2600... Yes, that's true. ...back in the 80s, uh-huh. right, was a huge part of my childhood, right? So I'm obviously... I'm in my 40s now, and my friends... Growing up in the 80s, everybody had this crazy system, right, that you could play these amazing games on that you were so used to just playing in the arcade that you could now play at home for free, which was amazing. No quarters needed. I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, 5th grade, 6th, 7th grade, I just remember you would go to like a 7-Eleven and every couple months they'd swap out one of the two arcade games. Remember you put your quarter up there to kind of indicate that you had the next game? You put game. it up on the sign, yeah, on the marquee. So cool, cool. I just I just remember like how awesome that was. So you and I, we both saw this. There was and if mi- you had eight quarters, it's like, whoa, this guy's rich. rich. Yeah, yeah, or this guy's not doing laundry this week. You know what I used to do? <laughs> <laughs> He's either rich or not doing laundry. You know what I used to do? I'm not even making this up. When I grew up, I was born in Jersey, so I lived across the street from a strip mall, uh-huh. and there was this place called Joe's Pizzeria, and they had Gunsmoke and Tapper. And so what I'd do is I'd go around with this other kid, and we'd we'd get a garbage bag, and we'd collect aluminum cans. <laughs> and we'd collect all these aluminum cans, we'd turn it into the machine, and then it would dispense a few quarters. Right. And there was this horse ride that you could go outside outside the grocery store, and if you punched it enough times, <laughs> like, quarters would come out. So we'd get, like, a handful of quarters and go play Gunsmoke literally for two minutes. So it was like an hour's <laughs> worth of work for two minutes of pure bliss and joy I, I, playing I remember, Gunsmoke and I Tapper. remember speaking of return. This has nothing to do with our guest today, but I remember returning aluminum cans. I had a buddy that worked for a liquor store, and he was in charge of— Is this last week? <laughs> and by friend, I mean me. <laughs> no, but he, he was in charge of returning the aluminum cans, right? Yeah. So we would bring in like four cans, which would be 10 cents each, and he'd cut us a receipt for $20. And then we'd bring it to the front of the store, and then they would give us the 20 Because oh, they had no idea we were friends, and they had no yeah. idea who was who. So it was funny because we would grab this, and then 
eventually they caught on and like the owner be like, Hey, I'd like to help you count the cans. It's like, well, why would you, why would you bother? <laughs> so basically what you and I both saw this amazing, amazing documentary about Atari and how uh, the games of Atari released were considered um, awesome. I mean, they had so many great games, but yes. there was also a game that towards the end of Atari's run, mm-hmm. a game called E.T. Right. was considered by many one of the worst video games of mm-hmm. all time, which, I mean, you and I can both agree we played Atari over and over and over again. Was it really the worst game of all time, no. right? No. So then there was this urban legend within this movie. The movie's called Atari Game Over. There was this urban legend in the movie that, or, or throughout life, that because the game was so bad and there were so many returns because they made too many of them, mm-hmm. that it was buried in a landfill in New Mexico, right? right? So this movie, Atari Game Over, focuses on this screenwriter, Zach Penn, this documentarian, mm-hmm. who talks about the video game industry and also tries to find out if this urban legend is true. Is there really all of these returned E.T. cartridges? I believe that they're buried, too, underneath a bunch of your headshots from 97, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> We're trying to keep this classic. Okay, okay right. good. Buddy. So so the, the rumor was, hey, is, are there all these games buried in a landfill and in, in New Mexico? Is that true, not true? Right, and, and then the documentary explores perhaps the demise of Atari. Was yes. this really the game that broke its back? And are the cartridges there? And then how did it affect the overall industry, how did it affect Atari? And, and a certain individual. Yeah, and, and so we, we, you and I saw this movie, and I was just mesmerized with this movie. I've seen it like yeah. eight times. It was on Showtime a couple of uh, weeks ago. And so uh, when I watched the movie, uh, the gentleman who started with Atari back in 1981, who came from HP and just this brilliant guy, a brilliant programmer, started with Atari and just created these great games, which we'll talk about. But he was the one who created E.T. and was a focal point of this movie, Atari Mm -hmm. Game Over. And fortunately, uh, through a couple of connections and our buddy Farrard in Chicago, Mm -hmm. we managed to get him as a guest on the dojo. He lives in Northern California and he's calling from um, his place in Northern California. And we would like to welcome to the Gentleman's Dojo, Howard Warshaw. Howard, thank you so much, bud. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. I know that you are a very busy guy. You're obviously not in the programming industry anymore. You're a psychotherapist up in the the San Ramon kind of uh, Northern California area, correct? In Silicon Valley, yeah. I'm in uh, I am in the East Bay and in the, on the peninsula in Silicon Valley and Los Altos. It's it, it's so crazy. So you know, it's like. Can I just say this real sure. quick, Howard? On behalf of Gary and I. I just want to thank you for essentially making our childhoods because it was, <laughs> I mean, I, to to get the 2600, I, I, there's very few memories I have of like looking back at my childhood where I remember most of it. You know, you know, I played hockey growing up. I, I don't remember. It's all a blur. I remember getting the 2600 the first day. I remember playing those games. I remember playing with my friends. I remember coming home from school and rushing back to you know my basement with my friends and playing the 2600 and all those incredible games so before we get started thank you nothing but gratitude and appreciation thank you so much for that and also for taking the time entirely welcome i really appreciate that thank you i mean just i remember when i came home one day after being somewhere and i i walked into my bedroom and there was after you got beat up (laughs) there was a miss pac-man cartridge sitting on my bed and it was just like it was just amazing, and I remember when you would go to Toys R Us to, to buy a game, and if you saw that little leaflet in the right, – right, right, you knew that the game was in. And what people would do is if they didn't have the money to buy it, they would hide the leaflet like in another part of the store so they'd come back in later on. Yeah. Like, a week later, like it would still be there. It was really, really funny. Um, so it, it is absolutely crazy to me. So, Howard, you started um, at, at HP before you went over to Atari in 81, correct? That's right. And so I, we, was a, go ahead. I, I, we saw we saw in the movie that Atari was was known for these crazy kind of recruiting parties to get people over <laughs> to join them. Were you part of that before you joined the group? Oh no, not at all. I wasn't part of the recruiting parties. I begged my way in when I first went to Atari. I was working at Hewlett Packard, and I thought this was like software death. I really thought this was a place where programmers go to die. It's like the software pastor. And I had just come out of some very exciting and groundbreaking work in my graduate work in college. And at the time, it was like really revolutionary stuff, working with microprocessors and networking and things like that. Then if you look back there, I was working on big, huge projects, and it wasn't interesting to me. And all the joy that I had had from programming was gone. And I really felt bad about that. And I used to act out a lot. 
at, at HP. I was a very, I was like the zoo case at HP. It really <laughs> wasn't very hard to be at HP. <laughs> so, and one of the coworkers comes up to me one day and he goes, you know, I was telling a Howard story to my wife the other day. And she said that that's pretty typical of what goes on where she works. I go, oh, where's that? He goes, a place called Atari. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So I went and I interviewed there, and the interview technically went really well, but at the end they said, you know, we don't know if we're going to make you an offer. And I was like, why not? He goes, well, we're afraid you wouldn't fit into our environment. I knew what he meant because I showed up very professionally for an interview. You were wearing shoes. (laughs) Yeah, and a shirt. (laughs) And, and And they thought I was too straight, basically, to make it in that environment. And I just basically wore them down. I just begged them and begged them and said, look, I really think this is a great match. I think this would be a big mistake. Give me a chance. I took a huge cut in pay and went there on probation to just have the chance. Wow. And after a while I was there, people realized I definitely was the kind of person <laughs> who should be at Atari. And uh, it was, because I was a suitcase at Atari even. <laughs> so it was, it was really, it was, it was a match made in heaven. It totally was. I would like to ask you this, Howard, j- just to take one step back, because computers are so prevalent in our everyday, you know, it, there's computers everywhere. A six-year-old has a computer today. Back in the day, computers were not everywhere. How did you discover your gift for programming? And it seemed like in the course of the documentary, you truly had a real passion for it. So how did you first discover it? I do. Well, it's kind of ironic because I avoided computers like the plague. I'm, when I was in high school, we had access to I would grew up in New Jersey, you know, if you call that growing up. And <laughs> it was in, we had access to a computer at Rutgers. We had a terminal in my high school where we could have accessed this computer. And there were, I had friends who were nerds and they would get on the computer and they would play with it and they would practice programming. I never touched it. I never wanted to have anything to do with it for some reason. And I was in an economics and mathematics curriculum at uh, the school. And this was before there were computer science departments, right? That was a very new thing. Because, you know, I was going to school back when you could afford to go to school. I mean, this was a long time ago. (laughs) But in my economics work, at one point, one of the professors comes up to me and they said, you know, Howard, you know, do you have any computer stuff? And I said, no. And they said, because, you know, if you're really going to go anywhere in economics, you're really going to have to have some computer background. So I said, okay. So I walked into uh, uh, the office of a guy who was going to try and launch a computer department in the School of Engineering at Tulane, which didn't exist yet. And so I, and he was teaching an intro to Fortran course, an old programming language. And so I walked into his office, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'd like to pick up your course. This is the middle of the semester. <laughs> And so, and he's like, really? And I go, yeah, you know, you know, what is, you know, like, it's like a half credit course. And I, and I really kind of walked in with, I, I wasn't horrible, but I kind of had the idea of like, what, this is so tough. <laughs> and, and so, and I think he looked at me and it was like, the truth is he was like this really dyed in the wool Southern, you know, just barbecue kind of guy and I was like this New York Jew hyped up walking in and here's this confrontation <laughs> in a sense and he thought to him, he told me later he said what he thought to himself was you know I'm going to give this guy just enough rope to hang himself and so right. goes, okay sure grab a book come on in and uh, I'll see you in class so I picked up a book started reading it that night I did the first half of the course what <laughs> that evening the next that evening, yeah. And the next night, I finished the course. What? But it was just, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, my God. Was it just that so easy for you? Great. Uh, it was that It was that familiar to me. It was that comfortable to me. For some reason, I really was kind of made for a... What it is, is the way I looked at it was computer programming is like puzzle solving. Right. And I love to do puzzles. But, you know, therapies like that, too. Each person is their own unique puzzle, and my challenge is to solve their puzzle and help them see the full picture and do better from it. And it's like, so this was just amazing. I thought, oh, my God, this is fabulous. This is like, it was like an awakening for me. I thought, oh, my God, I don't have to read stuff. 
<laughs> I have like no homework. I just do these fun puzzles and I just spend time doing that. And I thought, oh my God, that's it. So I finished my economics major. I finished my math major. And then I just went whole hog with the computers. I took every computer course they had and ended up finished because I graduated early with my bachelor's. Uh, I accelerated my program and I took a lot of courses then. And then this guy created a master's program for me and one other guy. It was like we, I was, I was 50% of the first graduating class of the Graduate School of Computer <laughs> wow. Engineering at Tulane University. Me and Archibald J. Greffer. You know, it was like, it was, that's an amazing roster, right? Howard Scott Warshaw and Archibald J. Greffer. <laughs> and he, he was a very cool guy, and we really had a lot of fun and, and basically just took every course they had, and when they ran out of courses, they, I would teach courses. <laughs> and oh my it was like God. that was my master's. I got a one-year master's, and then I just came to Silicon Valley because that's where I had to go. Archibald yeah. ended up going on to create games for Intellivision. <laughs> <laughs> well, Howard, it's so, it's know, so funny I, how much different you are from Steve and I. Like, Steve and I both went to mid-American conference schools. We were in there for six years, finishing our associate's degree. <laughs> this guy's begging to get in, like, to a Fortran programming class, and you and I are just dumping out of classes because we're too lazy to go. <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't know how I graduated. But, Howard, I do want to ask you, when, when it comes to programming— well, you guys had video games. I did. Oh, Let's, yeah, that's true. Well, thanks to you. But I, I, I want to ask you, when it comes to programming, if you were to announce, like to me, I always just pictured somebody sitting in front of a computer, typing in, I guess, zeros and ones. I just don't know what it takes. Is it analogous to, to, to making a painting where you're sitting there and slowly you can see the painting come together as you're creating a game? Or is it, like you said, is it a puzzle? Because for, for just a complete outsider... I just go in, I put the disc in, I play my Battlefront on work. PlayStation. Right. It's going to work. How, I mean, what is it like for you? Is it boring or is it is it challenging? Like, I just don't know what, what it's like to program. So, Okay, I, that's a really good question. That's a re Nobody's ever asked me, you know, that what's it like to program. And so you're making me think. And, okay. Know, <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, you know, using my brain has always worked for me. <laughs> it's like what it's like to program it occurs to me is like legos it's like building something with legos right okay you have a certain number of pieces you have program instructions right so a computer can't just do anything it has a limited number of instructions right, right. there's things you could you know you can add this you can move this you can put this here and so like with lego you have different size pieces right? you have a whole bunch of different pieces and so like building like a house or a car or a plane or something out of Lego is very much like program because in order to do it right, you have to get all the right pieces in the right order in the right places. And then it all comes together and you see this whole, you see this total thing that's working. Or maybe, you know, the wing was, a, the wings aren't symmetric or maybe, you know, it was missing a window somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so you look at it, you get it together and you go, oh, that's pretty good. It's mostly there, except I'm missing this. How can I go back and put in this extra piece to complete the picture more like what I want it to look like? Right. I think that would be the simplest and clearest analogy of what it's like to program. But but here's 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 a, a question for you, Howard. I, I'm just wondering, so when you start working at Atari in 81, right, I, I, I'm wondering how the the mood is. Like basically you go in and so I, I'm, I'm comparing it to – people who write on a sitcom, people who write on a movie. So you go in, and is there tons of ideas being tossed around for what could be a good game, what's what's going to be a fun game, and then, like, everybody throws their ideas in on how to program it? Because obviously, you know, you created Yars Revenge, and you created Raiders of the Lost Ark, but, like, you've obviously had your hands in a bunch of other games, too. So how does that work in terms of, like, everybody partnering up and programming a game together? How does that happen? Okay, so the beauty of Atari, you know, nowadays video games are a collaborative effort. with a huge number of people, and it has a lot of inertia, and it's, it's hard to make changes, and you have to create a design document, and you do all this. It's very formal, and it's, it's, it's a big monolithic thing, and it's, a, it's not much fun anymore to me. Mm -hmm. okay? There's no what hot tubs on the first then, floor. <laughs> what it was then was it was a work of authorship, and it was like a community of artists. Okay, so you can think of that as it wasn't like a community making a game. What you had was a bunch of people, each of which is doing a game. Now, we also collaborated a lot. You know, we'd comment, we'd play each other's games, we'd talk about ideas, we'd share, 
We had MRBs, which were meetings where we would discuss game ideas and concepts and possibilities, both from a technical programming standpoint and just from a pure gameplay standpoint. MRB was an interesting thing. Every once in a while, we'd announce MRB is coming up and, you know, and so and such is such a place at such and such a time. MRB were actually the initials for a marijuana review board. Which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, uh, as well. So it was, it was, uh, it was, a, it, it was an environment that drew upon all manner of input to create, you know, the output we were going for. And it was, so you had, we would trade ideas, we would talk, but then you'd go and you'd do your game and your game was your game and you could take it wherever you wanted to. And you just tried to make it go. And, it was an amazing challenge because it is like a mixture of painting where there's a lot of concept and working towards your concept. And it's, it's, it's each iteration. Like my wife is a painter. You know, she's a fine artist and she's totally fine. In fact, (laughs) (laughs) she's, uh, when I watch her paint, it's really an interesting thing to me because I see like, like there's a pass on the painting and then there's another pass. I think of a painting as you start in one corner and you do everything just right until you get to the other corner and you're done. (laughs) There it is. But it's not. It's like she does like one pass on it, and then it's kind of a rough idea, and then another pass on it, and it's a little better. And after a while, it's like it's amazing this picture emerges from it. So a game is like that, and that you start with something very raw and very rough, and you keep adding to it and adding to it and finishing it. But it's also like solving a puzzle, because in each case, when you want to put something in the game, you have to translate this idea that I have in gameplay and what that's going to be into these instructions I have in the computer and can the computer, can I convince this system and I figure out a way to tell this system to do what I needed to do to make that piece of gameplay happen. And that, and right. the, the capabilities on the system are limited. You can't always do it, but they're, they're really only limited by your creativity. You can't make any system do anything, but there were things, if you look at the very early games that came out on the 2600 system, and versus some of the later games that came out of the 2600 system, you see the amazing learning curve that went on, that as programmers we all developed and each contributed and then shared back with each other some of the technical stuff that we were developing to increase the capacity. Like if you look at the Ms. Pac-Man cart on the 2600, yeah. and you compare that to like combat, right? The right. early games or yeah. tank, it's like, holy crap, you know, is this really the same machine? And it is. But you're not going to do something like a Tempest or a Missile Command and really make it look exactly right, but you can approximate it on that system. And then then what happens with home consoles is the next generation comes out and the the capability is much greater. See, now we're at a place. Back then you were very limited in what you could really even possibly do. But we tried to do everything we could with it. And that to me is the challenge. Got yep. limited resources and do the most, do mm-hmm. the most amazing thing to have someone look at something and go, oh my God, I can't believe that came out of what I've been looking at all this time. Right. That's it, a great challenge. It is Nowadays, crazy. Go ahead. Oh, it is crazy because you look at some of those games like Asteroids and Space Invaders and some of these games that were so great. And then I just remember games like Basketball, where it was these two stick figures playing one-on-one, or baseball, <laughs> right. where it was one-on-one, exactly. or football. I mean, it was really crazy to just see just where it had went from, you know, A to Z. But I, I had always wondered that, Howard. I had always wondered, was there, like, just a big whiteboard, you know, in your conference room? And it was like, okay, Howard's working on Yars Revenge. Another guy's working on this. Another yeah. guy's working on this. And then, like, like when you pitch a game like a Yars Revenge, does it say I, – I mean, I obviously know that that came from a different game that you originally planning to do, but – is there is there like a like almost like in sales where they say hey this game has to be done programmed and ready for distribution on December thirtieth? I mean how does that work? So when I first got there it was not the case. When I first got there, what it was was you just go do a game. There were sometimes we'd ask for a game and let us know when it's done and we'll mark it. Okay, that's the way it was. But after a couple of years, it started to be like oh my God, we can buy a license. That's going to make this game really sell. So as long as we have the game in time for this sales window, we'll be all good. So schedules were actually an innovation, quote unquote, in in game development, which were very harmful to the creativity of the game development. But it was a big innovation in the marketing development because there was a lot of conflict between the marketing and the engineering. When I first got there, it was like, yeah, I was assigned a game. I was assigned... Star Castle, which was what we call a vector graphic, which means everything on the screen is drawn in lines. 
It's just everything is a line. And it looks very liney. Like Asteroids was a vector game, right? All the Asteroids were just outlines, and you could just have a series of straight lines, flat lines. And it doesn't look very spectacular on a screen, right? It's not very colorful. It's not that. And I just thought, eh. And it also, the play, it was one of those games that, you know, there's some things you can do easily on the 2600 and some things you can't do easily. And the stuff that was acquired for this game was exactly the stuff that would not play easily or well on the 2600. And this was my first game. Right, so I don't know if you know me by now. <laughs> like, I like to innovate. You know, and I, when I show up, when I first do something, I really want to make a splash. I want it to be really cool, right? Mm -hmm. And video games was the, after programming like this really obscure network translation software at HP, I was ready to like explode into something interesting. And video games to me was a huge opportunity to really do something cool. And I looked at this game and I thought, this is not cool and it's going to be so much worse on this system. I mean, I didn't know everything about it, but I knew enough about it already to know this would suck. So I went to my boss and I said, look, I know you want me to do this game, but believe me, this game is just going to suck on this system. So I said, I think I could take some of the basic play mechanics and convert it into something that's more appropriate to the system. I think it would be a lot better. And to his credit, you know, he said, okay, you know, go for it. Check it out. And that was the beginning of what was to become Yars Revenge. And what I, but the thing is, I didn't approach, I didn't approach making games like a program. I was a programmer, but I, I also didn't really approach games like a game maker. All my life growing up, I didn't have video games, right? I always tried to find and make and create games. And I loved to be entertained and I loved to play games, but I had to make my own games. So I always, the idea of creating a game was very familiar to me and I liked it, right? right? But the way I approached doing this game was as a movie maker, okay? And what I mean by that is... But I like making movies also. <laughs> and the thing you need to do in movies, particularly low-budget movies, is you need to do everything you can to make it seem bigger than it is. Right? You want to get the most impression for the minimum expenditure. And that's, you know, I've studied economics in college, and that's really the most valuable thing for me in program was my economics background. Because economics teaches you to allocate scarce resources efficiently. Mm -hmm. And that's what you had to do on the system. So when I say I was, did it like a filmmaker, what I did was I used sound and I used color in ways that people really hadn't done before. And so when I was starting to put, when I put screens up, when I would start to get yards up on screen mm -hmm. and you'd see some of the early stuff and you see all this eye popping color stuff jumping around and you'd hear these, these pulsing tones, you know, you hear all this stuff. I was doing things that to me seemed natural that nobody had really done yet. And people would come by and they'd go, whoa, you know, it would just catch people's eye. They wanted to know what it was. And I thought, yeah. That's what I want to do. You know? and, and so it was cool because what I did was I threw away a lot of rules and I just said, oh, here's some data. I'm going to throw it in a color register. I'm just going to throw it in a graphics register and see what happens. Instead of trying to over control it, I decided it's easier and quicker just to take anything that's available and just throw it somewhere else and see what happens. Right. You know, it's sort of like a Miro painting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... And there you go. And so, and then there were some controlled elements and stuff. And the other thing I borrowed from filmmaking was this idea of like, you know, in a lot of action films, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but there's this thing I call it the right, left, up, down thing, right? And what it is, is in a lot of action sequences, if you watch the screen, you know, when you're watching the screen, you have a certain view and things enter the screen. And what happens is in a lot of action scenes, if they're, real, they're really well-done action scenes, you tend to see stuff coming from the bottom, from the top, from the right, from the left, bottom, top, right, left. They keep bringing stuff in from different places to remind you that the world is much larger than what you're seeing right here. Right. Okay? And like the beginning of Star Wars, you see a big thing come in from the top, and then suddenly the planet comes up from the bottom, and here's the next ship, and this is so big, and then suddenly a, a shot comes in from the side, and it's exactly that, and it's like super impact. So I thought... Yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, it's <laughs> that and sound. You know, I was a freak for the the B sci-fi movies. I don't know if people know what that is anymore, but like in the 1950s and 60s, mm -hmm. there was like a million of these really cheap sci-fi movies that were like the mad scientist or the rocket ship going into space. And, you know, and, and that's basically the two movies. <laughs> <laughs> like and, the blob, right? 
you know, in the science movies, they had those two electrodes with the arcing thing, you know, the Frankenstein thing. Mm-hmm. So I just said, oh, yeah, having a background rhythm that's going on and then interrupting that with events, with game events and sounds that are foreshadowing game events. So you don't necessarily hear it because it's kind of subtle, mm-hmm. but it changes your mood and you get a sense of anticipation and maybe a little anxiety with it. And, and you know something's about to happen in the game. And I think these were the kind of things that I was thinking of where most people were thinking, how can I get a third player on the screen? So it was a different way of looking at what we're delivering. So, and there was, there was kind of a, there was a tension in, on some levels because some people were all about doing the tactical stuff and coming up with a really clever way of creating a capability on the system. But they didn't necessarily have an idea of what to the capability. Mm-hmm. And then to me, having the capability itself was really the big key. You know, it was, I wanted to know what the game was going to be and what's the game play going to be. And that was, and so when we worked together, it was great because, you know, I was someone who was focused on what you do in the play. How do you make the game fun? Mm-hmm. There are other people who are really focused on coming up with these amazing technical tricks and, uh, and techniques to make the machine do more, to go from combat to a Ms. Pac-Man, right? right? To move that capability. And when you put that stuff together, you've got an amazing cauldron of exciting development and remarkable things were coming out of it. You know, we were pioneering a new medium, and, and we totally knew it. I mean, that's where I was. I thought, oh, my God, we're taking TV, which is going to pass with medium, and turning it into something interactive. Right. And in my mind... One of the big things for me was when I was a teenager, the biggest problem that I had, and it was a big problem for me, was boredom. I was really, <laughs> really bored. And what I, in my mind, what I was doing was I was creating stuff that I knew if I would have had this stuff, I would not have been nearly as bored as I was. I don't know if I would have been as productive, but I definitely <laughs> would not have been as bored. And, and I felt good about that. I really felt good about the idea that I, there was something that was really difficult for me as a team, and I'm going to make sure that other teams don't have to deal with that. that. And you could say on some levels that was the beginning of me as a therapist as well, the idea of wanting to heal, wanting to do something beneficial for people and help them through something difficult. Well, you I, look, it's like it's very evident even in just talking to you and obviously the documentary that you are so passionate or you were so passionate about these games and and doing things outside the box. But you weren't trying to think outside the box. You just were doing it. And so you you hit you're just you're you're hitting these home runs. You, Yars Revenge, which was like the biggest selling cartridge and then Raiders. And you got to work with Spielberg. I mean, what was that like working with Steven Spielberg on Raiders and, and, and on E.T.? It was amazing. Spielberg is like fabulous. I really liked Steven Spielberg because with, with the first time I met Steven Spielberg, it was just so apparent to me that he had what I call he had the eye of a child, which meant he was able, even though he was a grown up and very successful doing all this cool stuff, he could still just look at stuff like a little kid, totally free, unfettered. And we really kind of shared that. In fact, the first I'll never forget the first time I met Steven Spielberg, I had to fly down to. Uh, to Warner Studios to meet with him because the, I would, he was going to sort of check me out to see if I was someone he wanted to do Raiders. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they sent me down, I brought a copy of Yars, I showed him Yars, we sat around, we talked. But the thing was, actually, and this was one of the most amazing days of my life, right? I, I do get excited about stuff. If I can't get excited about something, I don't do it, right? But the stuff that I do, I'm super excited about. <laughs> well, I'm and, sorry about this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously right on with this, I'll tell you. This is fun. You guys are a lot of fun to talk with. And... I got to say, so that day, I, so I get on an airplane, like at 6.30 in the morning. I don't do stuff at 6.30 in the morning, right. you know? but I got on this plane because I'm going to see Steven Spielberg. So, okay, so I show up at Warner Studios at like, for my, I'm there for my 9.30 a.m. appointment. I have flown from Northern California to Southern California. I walk in, and the first thing that's like, here's the secretary, and she says to me, Oh, we've moved your appointment to 3.30. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, what? Uh. I flew, I actually, and at first I was like kind of pissed off. You know, I thought, really? You know, then you're moving my appointment six hours? I have right. to change my flight and all this? But then I thought, wait a second, Howard. <laughs> you are in the middle of Warner Studios. So I just looked at her and I said, 
So I said, um, can I just walk around a lot until then? And they go, sure, do whatever you want. Nice. And I was like, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm a super te- – I'm one of those kids who watch six hours of TV a day and seven if there was something good on. <laughs> and right. it's like it was – I got free reign to walk around. I stole stuff off of TV sets. <laughs> I mean, it was just amazing. That's I just great. walked in a building to sets anywhere, and if there weren't people already there, I was there. And it was just, what an amazing treat. I got to go eat in the commissary with all these people who were in costume and makeup and stuff. Yeah. It was great. You know, people are like, who are you? Oh, well, I'm just, you know, on lock today, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and nobody gave me any shit. They probably have Howard's right. picture up in the security booth. Yeah. It says, looking for this man who stole Tinkerbell really, trinkets. We're going to send this guy to Universal next time. But it was, uh, and it was an amazing day. And then finally, I get to talk to Steven Spielberg. So we have this nice chat, and we're really connecting. I mean, it really felt like a very creative and fun conversation. So at one point, I said to him, I said, you know, Stephen, to tell you the truth, I have this theory about you that you're actually an alien. Would you like to hear it? And so he goes, yeah. And so I laid out this whole thing. I mean, I really had this idea, what I thought was, you know, because this is in the early 80s. And in the early 80s, it really did seem like we were getting very close to being contacted by aliens. And part of that was Steven Spielberg was making, he was making movies that were about friendly aliens coming here to meet us, not aliens trying to kill us and take the planet. Right. And so, and that was new, and they were huge. And so I told him, I said, well, you see, the thing is, I figure if the aliens, you know, if they're going to meet us, they're not just going to show up one day and say hi, like in the day the Earth stood still. You know, what they're going to do is they're going to they're be smart. If they're smart enough to get that this is a place to go, they're going to be smart enough to send an advanced team, right? They're going to do a little recon, and they're going to do a little culturalization. And so I said, I figured that Steven Spielberg was a part of this advanced alien team, and he's the production artist. And it's his job to make movies that show aliens in a more sympathetic light. And then the other people on the team, they're the super marketing people. And what they've done is they've made sure that these movies get seen in every country and every language all over the world. So the whole earth is prepared to receive aliens in a more positive light. And once that's achieved, then the aliens show up and it's, oh, hello, how are you doing? And then we'll discover they've been among us all along anyway. And, you know, that, by now that's an old plot line, but it was relatively new back then. Right. Spielberg. I believe, and I told him that, and I said, so I really think that's one of the reasons your movies are so successful, is that you have these aliens marketing for you, and it's great job, great job. (laughs) (laughs) And so he really liked that. I think that got me the job. Oh, nice. And uh, and he actually talked to, he he does interviews all the time with this stuff, and he told some other magazine, and I ended up getting quote of the month in Games Magazine in 1982 for calling Steven Spielberg an alien. (laughs) That was kind of cool. Spielberg was probably asking, what was he doing during those six hours when we were supposed to be meeting? He must have been smoking something out in the van (laughs) to come in here and talk about this alien life form. (laughs) I probably should have met with him at 930. (laughs) That was probably the one day I wasn't smoking anything. It was unbelievable. So here's the the weird thing. So, right, so you you have all these great games. You, you, You then do the... E.T. game, which, you know, you, you had to design very quickly, you know, in, in, in four or five weeks as compared to like five months, which were some of the other games. But but right. j- just fast forwarding aside from that game. So you, you get this call, Howard, from this guy, Zach Penn, right, who's putting this movie together about Atari mm-hmm. game over and he's focusing on the video game industry and then the, the E.T. cartridges possibly being buried in this landfill. So you get a call to participate in this movie, right? And so how does that make you feel that they want to so to speak, you know, dig up part of your past and in and, and something that meant so much to you, but then got criticized so heavily. Like, how did that make you feel when you got a call from this guy to be part of this movie that, you know, had so many different parts to your life? Oh, I felt very good about it. I mean, I was, I was kind of expecting the call at some point because what had happened was for a couple of months, I was getting emails from people all over the web mm-hmm. who were just going, Hey, we heard they're doing a movie about ET. Have they contacted you yet? <laughs> it's like there's people all over the place do this. I didn't even know about it. I said, well, no, not yet, but I guess they will at some point. I just figured most people who are really doing a story of ET come to me. I mean, I have literally done hundreds of interviews around ET over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been like thirty years, and I'm used to talking. People think, you know, oh, do you really want to talk about? It? Oh, it was such a horrible game. You know, it's like, hey, I'm fine. For me, it was it was 
I have a very positive take on it. For me, it has a lot of meaning and stuff, but I can talk to you some about that. But it's, you know, the thing is, when he, when he called up, I just told him honestly, you know, some of my thoughts, because he, he didn't know what kind of movie he was going to make yet. Mm-hmm. And so he was exploring it. And he talked to a number of other people, and then when he talked to me, I've been practicing talking about this for a long time, right? So it's like there's not a problem for me to talk about E.T., and I have all kinds of stuff to say about it and the whole Atari experience and stuff. Because that was a mind-blowing thing that went on, and I spent a lot of time in my life processing it. I even did a documentary series called Once Upon Atari that is all about what it was really like to be a game engineer at Atari in the early 80s. It's the only piece of media ever done on Atari entirely by people who work at Atari. Oh, wow. you know, and, and in fact, I even heard it's available at onceuponatari.com, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, oh. was it, was it <laughs> onceuponatari.com? Is that right? Well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly right. <laughs> Gary, did you get Gary, it? What is it called again, I, Gary? I think it's called onceuponatari.net. Did I hear it correctly, or is it .com? I believe no, no, it's... I think it's onceuponatari.com. Yeah, there it is. There it is. There it is. Com that you will experience once you watch it. And, and you know, here, here's what's crazy about the, about the movie, which Steve and I both loved. I mean, here's what's crazy about this, and you know this better than anybody. I mean, a lot of people criticize the game E.T., right? But, I mean, you know this from working at Atari. Steve and I played Atari probably every single game that's yeah. out there. I, I mean, come on. There were a lot of bad, bad Atari games. There I mean, were a lot, look, there were a lot of bad games, and do I believe E.T. is, you know, E.T. has problems. There's no question. In but fact, you had I five weeks, a right? Lot of those problems. But the truth is, I'll put it up against any other game that was developed in five weeks. I'll yeah. tell you that. You know, <laughs> nobody has done that then or really since, as far as I know. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't believe for a second it's the worst game of all time, and most people don't. But the truth is, I really prefer it when people identify it as the worst game of all time. <laughs> I like that. Because I'm a believer in, A, that there's really no such thing as bad press, and B, I also did Yars Revenge, right, which is frequently cited as one of the best games yes. of all time. Right. right. So as long as E.T. is the worst game of all time, I have the greatest range of any game designer's <laughs> game. Right? So I'm proud of that. You know, one of my games is actually in the New York Museum of Modern Art, and another one of my games is the subflooring of the New Mexico Desert. Right? So that, that's range. Right? range. That's great. I like that. That makes me but but it was crazy for you because when you were walking around the offices in like 83, people were like, hey, Howard, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. And you're like, what are they talking about? Right. Like you, you really didn't know that they were really talking about the E.T. game. I mean, you really had you, you weren't too sure what they were talking about when they kept saying right, that. Well, to you. I mean, E.T. didn't become the worst game of all time until there was the web, which was 10 years after the game was made. Mm-hmm. And not only when there was the web, but then there were lists. You know, because one of the big things that came out when the web started was lists were all over the place. And so best of all time, worst of all time lists were very big. But the fact is, most people who talk about E.T. being the worst game of all time have never played it. They've never had a 2600. They've never actually interacted with the game. But it's a lightning rod for haters. Okay, so that's okay. You know, it's providing a social service. It's an outlet for these people who have this anxious energy they need to put somewhere. And they put it into hating E.T., so good for them. That's I got to ask cool, you, right? Howard. Look, I, I think after and I think the documentary was very redemptive for you um, because oh, yeah. it, because look, it, it 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 took the task. You were somebody that was given an impossible situation, right. and you said, "We'll find a way. We'll make it work." Uh, right there, I'm on board with Instead you. Instead of saying no. Exactly. Yeah, the easy thing would have been said no, but you you you, you got the stuff in your house. You're working on it 24 hours a day. It's an incredibly noble effort and 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 inspiring effort what you did. And then on top of that, you had you were a rock star at Atar. You're banging out hit singles. You you got the biggest albums. I mean, and then you got quote unquote this flop. But I thought after watching it, because you had those enormous successes, because you were the rock star of Atari. I thought, in turn, after watching it, that's what was. That's why you were able to handle "quote unquote" the failure of ET because you tasted success. So, after hearing this, I just got to ask you, how how is it even all these years later? You, it just seems like you got such a great head on your shoulders, and you really keep positive. You said you were rehearsing those those things. You've been talking about it. 
I don't know what what it is. What did you do that was cathartic for yourself in terms of coming out of the darkness and going back towards the light and keeping your head above water? Well, that's a really insightful thing that you're saying. I really appreciate it. And it's true. I think it's really a, a, a huge point that it might have been a very different experience had that been my first game as opposed to my third game. Right. But, you know, and I'm still, I'm the only programmer, I think, from Atari whose every game they put out was a million sellers, including E.T. Even after returns, E.T. still sold a million and a half. Okay, right. So it's hardly a, it's not a failure, but it was it was a problem and it wasn't a great game and there was a lot of issues with it. But you have to like my point with, you know, that the Internet hadn't happened yet was this. When ET, you know, nowadays you put a game out and within three or four days you have a lot of feedback, you know, exactly how it's received, what's going on and where it's at. Mm-hmm. Right. Because communication is more instantaneous. Back then, I finished the game in time to make the manufacturing deadline instead of just putting it uh, posting it online and having it available, right? right? So that was a huge success. I got a lot of positive feedback for that. Then a couple of months later, once it was selling and it was going, the Billboard Top 40, I had two of the top three or four games. Wow. Raiders and ET were both in the top five or top four for a while in sales. And, and again, I'm thinking, yeah, baby, <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. The negative feedback didn't start until into the next quarter, right? In early 83 was the first time we started to get the word back, like I said, because there weren't user forums where everybody's streaming. It took a while for the feedback to start coming back, and the feedback was mostly in terms of returns from uh, retailers who were unable to sell more of the units than they thought they would. Right. And so the, the, there was a lag in the time before there was any negative feedback. And then it got worse, and then it kept on. But it did go on for three decades, so there's that also. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but there's the thing about, you know, it's a really good question. So how do I come back from that? How do I bounce back? And what I say to you is, uh, I'm not a no kind of guy, right? Even my ex-wives will attest to the fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a guy who says no right. a lot. I'm just not that guy. Apparently, so, yeah, you're, you're doing the, you're doing our podcast. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's another yeah. You know, and, and in this case, with a capital Y, in my opinion. Thank, thank you. Right. So it's, uh, you know, I, and this is what I, I teach people and I tell people and I share with people is the idea that, you know, experience is, man, you know, what is the old Buddhist saying, right? That pain is, is uh, it, well, Pain is mandatory. Suffering is optional. Okay? You're going to have right. stuff that goes wrong. Stuff is going to be a problem. And I'm a firm believer that if you're, if you're really, if you're never failing, all you're doing is playing it safe and you're not growing. Mm-hmm. You know, my feeling about learning and growing and moving forward, because I've done a lot of careers, right? I mean, I have done many different careers. Now, being a therapist now is just another in a series, although I have to say it's the best one yet. I'm loving this. Oh, good. But, you know, it's, the way, the way I see learning is not just finding out something, studying it, and then doing it right. The way I see about learning is studying something and then making as many mistakes as fast as possible and trying never to repeat one, right? That's the thing. It's not Don't make a mistake twice, but make every mistake you can once as fast as possible. And that's, that's my model for learning. So when, when I got the chance to do the fastest game ever, <laughs> but, yeah, how can, I can't not do this. I have to do this. I needed a challenge. I needed a mountain to climb. And here it was. It was like a blessing to get faced with this. And I, no one else would even go near it. You know, the, the day we announced that Howard's doing E.T., okay, it was like, this is already like August. I only found out about the game August 20, um, July 27th for a September 1st deadline, which is unheard of. Right. But like a couple of days later, I actually had 36 whole hours to design the game before I had to be on a Learjet to go fly down to present the game to Spielberg and then start developing it. But as soon as I got back and we had a department meeting and they got and they announced, oh, by the way, Howard's doing E.T. And they were like, oh, geez, Howard, Howard just did Raiders. Howard gets to do all the games and stuff. <laughs> and there was like some grumbling. And I can understand that. And so I stood up in the meeting and I said, hey, I said, this game is due September 1st. I said, anybody else who wants to do this game, raise your hand. You can have it. Anybody. I said, who wants to do ET for September 1st? And crickets. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was just 
nothing. No, there were, and that was the last time anybody grumbled about me doing PT until wow. 10 years later when everybody complained, oh, God, why did they do this game? But, you know, that's another story. <laughs> Those guys were pitching like, combat, too. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to touch something like that, but to me it was irresistible. And because, because I knew the big secret, which is you, you, nobody can do a six-month game in five weeks. Right? Right. You can't do that. But, but the challenge is to design a good game that you can do in five weeks. And that's what I tried to do. And I came close. I think I had a good game that you could do in about six and a half weeks. But I still tried to do it in five. <laughs> so <laughs> it was close. But, you know, remember what we talked about earlier was this thing was there were some people who were like technically focused and just thinking about how to put together the program to make the game go. And we'll figure out what the game is later. Mm-hmm. And there were some people who were game focused and wanted to figure out what game are we doing and how easily can we do that game? And that was me. And right. that was a good match for this job because the, for the people who were technically focused, they know how long it takes them to technically approach a, pro- a program at the level they want to, and you can't do that in five weeks. But the idea of reorganizing the game design to accommodate the technology, which was an economics thing that I came up with, a lot of people didn't think that way. So I really was probably the best person to attempt this and that and the fact that nobody else would even dream of doing it. I mean, my boss's boss, who was the head of our whole development, already told the CEO, you can't have a game for September 1st. We can't do a game in five weeks. It's not going to work. It can't happen. He told him that. And even after he told him that, he told the CEO that, then the CEO called me directly to ask me if I could do it. Because he knew he knew enough about me because of some stuff that I did with Yours Revenge. <laughs> that was kind right. of interesting and involved him in a surreptitious way. That's another fun story, but <laughs> it's like he he knew he's just even though that the person who was in charge of all development said no, it can't happen. He should still call me to find out. And when he did, I said, "Oh yeah, Ray, I can absolutely do this for you." There was no question. This was just what I wanted. Right when I was burned out after having done Raiders, I wasn't burned out enough. I had to still you know throw myself in the fire. Wow. And it was you know that's my mentality at that point. I, the way I put it, you know, like, I don't know exactly what I was full of, but whatever I was full of, I was overflowing with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Spielberg, it just, Spielberg signed off on the game, which was the, the interesting part of the movie. He, he signed off on it. Absolutely. So it, it had to make you feel good because even though it wasn't as successful as you wanted it to be, Spielberg gave his blessing on it, and he obviously liked the game. Yeah. He did. Well, Spielberg liked the game because when he looked at that game, he saw $22 million. So he really <laughs> liked that game as long as the game goes out on time. And that was one of the reasons I had requested that Spielberg is the one who approves the game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so and- that was all good. But he did approve the game. And he talked about the game and he liked the game. He liked yards. You know, Spielberg liked the stuff that I was doing. I think Spielberg and I, you know, we got along very well because I think we were both basically a couple of wide-eyed kids. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's crazy. And, it was fun. and we didn't really spend a lot of time together. I mean, basically, you know, we would chat some and then I would do the game. And then right. I would show him the game. And occasionally he would come up to Sunnyvale and we'd have lunch together. Then I would go back and work on the game. There wasn't a lot of interaction. But I'll tell you one of the great interactions with Spielberg. When I went first go down to present the design, and here's the design. I finally come up with something I think I can do in five weeks. And, it, and it's because, because I need to make a splash, because I need to innovate, which is my personal problem. So it wasn't enough that I have to do a game in five weeks. I want to do something revolutionary. I want to do something that will break through. So it was one of the first games with a 3D world that you would play on. Okay, because I thought it wasn't a hard thing to do for me. And I thought, what a great sales point. You know, this will make a game a little huger, you know, so to speak. And so that was it. So I lay out the whole design. I go, here we go. Here it is. Okay, what do you think, Stephen? And he looks at me, and he actually says to me, he goes, you know, he goes, couldn't you do something a little more like Pac-Man? And I like, right. my jaw just dropped and hit the floor, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, really? In my head, I'm exploding. And I said, oh, my, are you kidding? Steven Spielberg, the most, one of the most innovative filmmakers we've seen in a long time, wants me to do a knockoff of his movie? Yeah, <laughs> of Pac-Man. And I was, I, was, I was thinking what I should say is, gee, Steven, can't you do something more like the day the earth stood still or something? (laughs) But the thing is, I wasn't so far gone that I didn't say, you know, Howard, Jesus, check yourself. Right. (laughs) Right. 
So I just looked and I said, you know, Stephen, I said, this is, uh, E.T. is a breakthrough movie. It's an innovative movie. It's, it's got tone. It's, it's an amazing thing. And I said, I think it deserves a breakthrough game, something that's more unique and really is a tribute to it, as opposed to just a knockoff, you know, with this. And also I'm thinking, I can't do a Batman game in, <laughs> in five weeks. This is the game I can do in five weeks. We got to do this game. And so... And he, but he, he just, he let go of that pretty quickly, but it was just, it kind of blew my mind in a second. And someone as innovative as him is saying, oh, by the way, why don't you just rip something up? Right, and right. Like, and it was so antithetical to how I think, which is probably more similar to the way he thinks. It just kind of surprised me in a moment. And then I also realized, you know, yeah, how much you're really going to argue with Steven Spielberg, too. And in, in <laughs> retrospect, I have to tell you, it may not have been such a bad idea, you know. It, 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 is, been, uh, it is crazy because Steve and I will attest, like even just watching the movie and you see the commercial that they show for E.T., right. you know, the com- like it's exciting. And I, I remember how many times I would get a cartridge and the packaging for the cartridge was so much better than the actual game. Like, even, oh, yeah. like, like you'd look at the package, you'd be like, oh, my God, this game is going to kick ass. And then you put your, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, it, That's what marketing is all about, right? Absolutely. Like goes up in hell and he goes, well, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, well, I saw the marketing video. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, you look at an Applebee's menu and that stuff looks good. And then you <laughs> go home and get food poisoning. So a quick, a quick, quick question. And, and here's what I loved about the movie for those who haven't seen Atari Game Over. It, it just really talks about the video game industry. It really focuses on you and just your 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 great successes and you going back and, and being at the landfill when they – Actually, take a look and see if the game, I don't want to give away too much for people who haven't seen it because they should see it. Um, but when you actually go back to the landfill in, in New Mexico and, you know, go there to see if there's actually games in the landfill. But two two quick final questions for you, Howard. First of all, what what are some of your favorite, favorite Atari games and some of the worst Atari games that you thought were out there? You mean like the twenty six hundred games yes. or in general? Yes, twenty six hundred games. What were what were some? And do you still have the system with all the games? I do. I don't have all the games. I do still have the system. And now they have <laughs> these throwback joysticks you can get, so they're yes. all modern versions yeah. of the old thing, and they play pretty accurately. Oh, nice. So uh, my favorite twenty six hundred game is probably either Kaboom or Warlords. Wow. Warlords was an Atari game. Kaboom was an Activision game. But they're really well done for this system, and they're really done well. I must admit, I, I like Yars. I, when I made Yars Revenge, I made it to make a game that I would enjoy playing, and, and I really do enjoy playing Yars. It's a fun game. Yeah. But I have to say that Warlords and Carla Maninsky, the woman who made that game, really, really a sharp woman, and she made a great playing game. It's a fun party game. I enjoy that. And Kaboom... Uh, it was made by a guy named Larry Kaplan, also a very sharp, very shrewd guy, and uh, someone I just have a lot of respect for. And this guy, Kaboom, is a really nicely done take on the vertical drop concept, as we say. <laughs> and, right. And it's just frenetic, and it's action-filled, and it's great. The well, how worst are... game has oh. got to be probably <laughs> Custer's Revenge. There was a time where, you know, I went to a CES. You know, in the old days, they were in Vegas. And there was this tent. There would be the main conference center, and there was this tent over on the side. What's going on in the tent? Oh, in the tent, there was people who were developing porno games, right? Because whatever the medium is, pornography is going to be one of the things that's going to be one of the first profitable ventures, right? Whenever you have a new medium, porno is one of the first things that comes out. Check out sexting, right? <laughs> yeah. Look at webcams. You know, it's like, you know, sex sells, and it does. So, so these guys, there were people from Playboy and people from all different kinds of, you know, hustler and publications like that who were looking to get into the game business when everyone was trying to get into the game business. So I would get calls from people. They would find out who I am, and they'd call me, hey, we'd like you to do a game for us. And I'd just kind of laugh at them and stuff. And then you'd look at the schlock that came out, and really some of the absolute worst games there were were from the porno people. <laughs> because they really know low budget. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what they know. So that's what they got. And in porno, you can get away with low budget as long as it's visible, right? But in video games, it doesn't work as well. 
<laughs> so, yeah. so I would say those were some of the absolute worst. Yeah, it is interesting. So some hope, of those. I hope everybody says ET though when they answer that question. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. Those Activision games, River Raid, Chopper Command, like those games were kick ass. I mean, like they were kick ass games, oh. and they knew how to make a graphic presentation that really stepped up. Well, you know we. Look, on behalf of both of us, yes. we cannot thank you enough. Everybody, go out, watch Atari Game Over. So go good. to onceuponatari.com. Yep. And, Howard, I, I got to tell you this. As I've, you know, we're both comedians. We travel around the country. We're looking for things to do during the day or afterwards. And there are all these coin-operated bars that are popping up all over the country now that are really, really popular. Um and I think that those are happening because it's a testament to not only the pioneering work that you guys did, but the fact that those games still hold up today. People still want to play those games. You can go home and play Call of Duty, but there's something, I, I wouldn't call it nostalgia. I think they're just genuinely great games. They're, they're fun great. to play. And there's a reason those are popping up all over the country. I don't know if you have seen these or been into these recently, but uh, I was just in Vegas. There's one downtown in, in Vegas, and it was it was just awesome. So on behalf of Gary and I, I just want to say thank you for not only taking the time to speak with us today, but again, once again, for all your hard work and making our childhoods. Yeah. You know, it means a lot to me to know that I provided entertainment for a lot of people. One of the ways I like, you know, people ask me, why did you become a therapist? You know, how do you go from being a programmer to being a therapist, right? And right. what I tell them is it's really not that big a jump, right? Because programmers and therapists were all systems analysts. It's just I've moved on to the brain, which is just a much more sophisticated hardware. Right. Right? Oh, interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah. But nope. the thing is, what, my life has kind of come full circle. I used to do a lot of time trying to entertain, trying to entertain nerds, and now I genuinely make their lives better. Right. Because I'm the Silicon Valley therapist, and I focus on high tech people and super intelligent people. That's who I. That's my clientele. That's who I work with. But I'll tell you, there's this is super satisfying work that I'm doing. It's mm -hmm. taken me 30 years to find something to do that brought me the same kind of value that I got from producing games that you could really see and hear and feel at times people enjoying when you see them playing it. To be able to have been at the center, at the start, of some of the value of the thousands or millions of hours of entertainment that was generated by some of the work that I did, it's humbling, it's a huge honor, and it's just something... I'm always, always grateful for it. So thank you guys so much for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed being here. You guys are great to talk with. And, and by the way, Howard, do you get a lot of customers? A lot Are, are a lot of your uh, patients who come see you for psychotherapy people who couldn't solve ET? Like, are they the ones that tried, <laughs> uh, they couldn't do it, so they, they come in now and see you? Okay, I wasn't going to go there. But the <laughs> truth is, you know, the real reason that I became a psychotherapist was I felt I needed to do something to compensate for the depression and anxiety <laughs> I created with that game. And I, do, I, do you have PTSD e all over the place? What can do I you say? have Do you have the ET cartridge hanging next to your degrees in your office? I think that that would be great uh, if you had it framed. The ET I game. do, and you have ET kind of eating the degree. That's <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. Well, Howard, again, yes. cannot thank you enough. Onceuponatari.com. Onceuponatari.com. Thank you so much, and thanks for not only sharing all your experiences, but I think a great lesson in quote-unquote what is considered failure. You took on a great feat, amazing. an amazing feat, and came with out class. of it on the other end with class and a, a lesson for us all. So thank you so much, sir. Let me just say this. Failure is not an end. Failure is a launching point. I really believe that. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. And Unbelievable. Next time, next time Steve, or, Steve and I are up in like the San, San, Fran, yeah, San, San Francisco yeah. area, I'm going to reach out, and we would love to have you out there as our guest. Definitely. Definitely. I'd love to see you guys. We would Absolutely. Love you. Well, thank you. What's that? You guys are funny. Oh, we hope so. <laughs> pass that pass that around to the club bookers. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Thank Howard. you, Howard. How about it for Howard, everybody? Thank, Thank you, you so much, so much Howard. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. Thank you. That awesome. was awesome. Just absolutely, absolutely awesome. Yep. And um, again, once again, the, the website, onceuponatari.com. And if people haven't seen Atari Game Over, which you just came see out, it. it's, it's so great. You got to so see great. it. And he comes off, as he did in the interview, I just... You can just tell he's a great guy. He's a hard worker. Yep. He's got a passion for it. And then, look, I, I can't imagine if you have a failure, I guess, again, quote unquote, a failure today, it's 
you know, it's on the web. It's, I mean, back in the 80s, if you have a failure, I mean, everybody knew about it. Look right. at how he came out of it. I mean, he's just... Well, look at like what, what he said about, about E.T. Like, you know, back then there weren't these lists. So people yeah. believe what they wanted to believe. It's like if people thought it was a good game, they, they thought it was a good game. But, but now... Because of all these lists, you're led to believe what other people think. Yeah. So you're like, oh, well, if these other people think it's shitty, I should think it's shitty too. And, right, I right. I mean, look at, look at, I mean, just such a good guy, you know, had the failure with the game. I mean, you know, his attitude obviously is so much different than yours. You keep swinging and striking out over and over again, and you still keep going out there. I don't know <sighs> Jesus why. Jesus Christ. I mean, we had a, such a great show, and then Yeah, you and then we ruined it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love you. This is very fitting <laughs> because I remember playing Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was young, and this is his game. I can't believe I got to talk. If, if somebody told, like, a seven-year-old me, I'd be talking to the guy that did the, the game. It's like, no way. Are you kidding me? Yes. And now here we are. We got to spend an incredible hour with Howard, and that was great. I could talk to him again for another hour just about video games, Activision. Atari, the hot tub parties. We didn't hear about that. Do you remember, I, you know. do you remember when Atari came out? There was a, another model released by Sears. It was uh, similar to Atari. It was the exact same. It was like a different console. Right. But it was like cheaper. Sears made it. It was kind of interesting. Where you bought your jeans. It was, uh, I think it was called the, uh... <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Joe. <laughs> no, Joe. Okay. Thank you. We'll see you guys, guys again Guys, by the way, yes. how they find you? At Candy Comedy. <laughs> At Steve Byrne Live. Guys, keep the reviews coming in. We do appreciate them on iTunes, so it's nice to see a few more pop up. But we'd love to know what you guys are thinking. Thank you so much.